0: All right, as I shared, we're in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, and we'll be studying verses 18 all the way through chapter one. And, and before we read the text, I just want to throw a question out there. I don't know if you ever think about this, but I often think about this question, why aren't more people in church on Sundays? I mean, perhaps, I mean, certainly you think, yeah, Tanner, you're a pastor, you should be thinking about these things, right? But, but, if, but if you're a follower of Christ, if you believe that Jesus uh, is and that he lived a perfect life and died a cruel death on a cross for uh, our sin, that we might be reconciled to God and was actually raised again to life, as, we, as we've sung about this morning, and this, this actually changes everything in our life can give us life and hope and peace, then, then wouldn't we want to share that with others? So hopefully this is a, a question that you wrestle with as, as well. Why aren't more people coming to church on Sundays? Well, there is a man named George Barna. He does a lot of, of research on topics and questions like these. And he tells us two primary reasons why those who do not attend church, we could call them the unchurched, why the unchurched does not attend church. Two of the the key reasons, not all the reasons, but two, two key ones. Number one, the hypocritical behavior of the church. Number two, they are not convinced that the church has anything to offer. Listen to this quote from Barna. He says this, The major obstacles are indifference and value. Millions of the unchurched do not care about church involvement because they do not see any need to get involved. Millions more stay away because they cannot make the value equation work. In other words, when they calculate the amount of time, money, and energy they would have to invest in church, they do not see a reasonable return on the investment. Now, we could look at that research and just kind of dismiss it. Oh, everyone says Christians are hypocrites, and we could make the argument, well, if they joined in with us, then they would just become another hypocrite too, right? Because we all blow it at times, and that's a standard that none of us can can live up to, the standard of perfection that sometimes uh, are placed on Christians who follow Christ. And so we could kind of dismiss this research, or we could see if it has some validity. And I believe it does. I want you to think about this. One reason for our at times hypocrisy, one reason why there are at times people who do not see a value in the church, they can't work out the investment equation, is because Christians live compartmentalized lives. We often live our life as if we are kind of wandering through a department store. Think about this, if if I go into a department store, there are certain places that I will inevitably go. There are also certain places that I will not go. So electronics, check, cosmetics, I'll pass, menswear, check, home goods, I'll probably pass. And we do this in our Christian lives, right? Church on Sundays, check. Bringing Jesus to bear and the implications that he calls for when I'm hanging out with my friends on Friday and Saturday night, I'll pass. Prayer before a meal, check. Prayer when the heat is on at work and at home, I'll pass. See, what what will it take for the church to display the transforming life that Jesus brings to us in such a way that those outside of the church would want to say, hey, you know what? I'm not sure if I buy into all of that just yet, but there is something compelling about the way that these people live their life. I mean, it's not just like kind of a, a Sunday thing. It's like it's touching every aspect of their life down to the details. This is the life that Jesus has brings us. Karl Marx once said that Religion is the opiate of the people, right? This is how sometimes non believers be Christians. It's like, I man, Christianity, religion is, is just this, this, this thing that kind of brings some kind of sense of satisfaction, keeps people going. But I like what Tim Keller I don't know if he came up with it or he just tweeted it this week, but he, he said Christianity is not the opiate of the people, it's the smelling salt. It awakens us to a totally different life. And what Paul has laid out here in Colossians 3 is he's saying, look, you've been raised with Christ. You have this new life in him. So put off that which does not belong to him. He even says put it to death, like get rid of it, and put on the new self. Clothe yourselves with Christ that you might live your life pleasing to God. And so now what he's going to do in Colossians three eighteen 18-4-1 is he is going to get very specific And he's going to address this idea of lordship, that that we need to kind of get out of the mindset that Christianity should be compartmentalized, but that actually Jesus should be lord of everything in our life, down to the details. Let's look at, see what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. This is what he says. He starts with the home. And he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so as we've read through this passage, I hope you have caught the language that Paul intentionally uses again and again and again and again. Seven times in nine verses, Paul references Jesus as Lord. He's saying Jesus needs to be Lord of every sphere of our lives. And think about it. When you cover home life and work life, you're, you're almost covering almost everything in between, right, when it comes to living life for the glory of Christ. And so Paul's main encouragement, this is what, he, what he, I think he would want us to hear this morning, is that Christians must make Christ supreme at home and at work. We recognize the Lordship of Christ no matter where we are, at home and at work. And he's going to start with the home. He's going to say, make Christ supreme in your home life. Now before we jump into these, these verses and break them down one by one, I want to give a couple of encouragements here. Number one, these verses are for all of us. You might say, well Tanner, I'm not married. I don't have children. That's not on the radar right now. Well, there's a good chance that most everyone in this room, even our children, one day will Be married. It's just statistically, that's the way it goes. Not everyone, sometimes God gifts people with singleness and that can be used for him. But chances are, everyone will find themselves in one of these stations of life. Number two, even if you don't find yourself in the station of life right now, this provides great instruction for our prayers, right? If you are unmarried, if you're not parents, pray for those who are. If you are married, pray for those who are not but may desire it. This is the beauty of the church. This is certainly something we should keep in mind in our community groups. And and, and finally, let me say that that we at Redemption Hill Church, we value families and children. We want to provide a, a context and cultivate an environment where families can thrive and grow, where children can learn what it means to know who God is and to follow him. To to equip parents to be godly parents, to lead their homes well in the ways that God has for us. And so to that end, Paul lays out some specific instructions about how to make Christ supreme in the home. And first he says this in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands. This is appointed command. He's given it for specific reasons. And, and you might say, you know, like, Tina, this is incredible. This is my first Sunday at this church, and there's, like, some kind of crazy command that seems, like, so archaic and out of date. We're in the 21st century now, not the first century. And so, like, why are you even going to preach a passage like this? Well, because it's in the Bible, and that's just what we do. We want to we embrace not bits and pieces of God's word. We want to embrace, like, the whole thing. And we want to do our best to really understand what it means. And so before we jump to conclusions here, and just kind of dismiss this verse and maybe like accept the rest of them, um, let's think about what it means and what it does not mean, all right? And I want to start with what it doesn't mean first. Number one, it doesn't mean that wives or women are inferior, all right? So if that kind of jumped into your mind, hey, Paul thinks that women are less than, then think again. And most of the men in this room, especially the husbands, at least this should be the case, it would be wise for you to make statements like this after church, guys, you should be able to say, man, my wife is so much smarter than I am. My wife is so much more beautiful than I am. My wife is so much cooler than me. Man, people love my wife more than they love hanging out with me, right? So go and do that when you get home, fellas. Um... So that's that's one thing that it doesn't mean. Another thing that doesn't mean that the wives have to be like this quiet little angel who can't like voice an opinion. Like if you hang out around Redemption Hill long enough, you're gonna get to know some of our, our wives in here and you're gonna see that you know like there are some pretty spunky ladies around here. All right? I mean, like some, some ladies with like some sass and some attitude, all right? And and, and you know what? That is perfectly okay biblically speaking. Right I mean, we 're always measuring all of our actions you know and, and the motives of our heart, but, but Paul doesn't, doesn't mean that, that women can't have personalities and, and be vibrant and you know give some feedback at sometimes, like in a humble manner, hopefully, but um, this is not what he means uh, another another thing that doesn't mean doesn't mean that husbands are to be dictators, so like everything your husband says goes, and and the wife just has to you know sign off on everything that a husband would would, would try to leave no. This, this idea of, of wives submitting to the husbands carries the idea that, that men, husbands, should be the leaders in the home. They should, they should set, the, set the pace, set the direction. It doesn't mean that when it comes to decision-making that wives, I mean, we husbands, we need our wives' input and counsel and help. And there may be a time where we disagree and we just need to, like, hey, let's push pause, let's pray about this, let's seek the Lord and, and how he wants us to go in this direction but husbands take the lead. And then, also think about this. It also means that men will be held more accountable before God one day for the marriage context, all right? And then you say, how do you, how do you get there? Well, if we go back to the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3, when Adam and Eve partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, who ate the fruit first? Eve, Right? who was held more responsible for their actions? Eve? No, Adam. Why? Because Adam was more responsible. He was to be taking the lead in their relationship. And so there is a a great responsibility for men to, to lead well. And we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. It doesn't mean that women are doormats in any way. It doesn't mean that women, wives, should submit to all men. It says that women should submit to their husbands. Now, if that's what it does not mean, what does it mean? And maybe this will help. It means to voluntarily put oneself under the leadership of another. When we see this word submit in Scripture, this is, this is the idea that it's carrying again and again and again. Some have said that biblical submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership in the home. I like how some have described it it's a disposition to yield in an inclination to follow the husband's lead. It means that we're recognizing that God has a particular order for our relationships. In his wisdom, however mysterious it may be to us, sometimes God has authority structures and, and he wants to order our, our uh, relationships in such a way that, that helps us push forward in a way that he desires. And so men must take the lead and women are to lovingly follow that lead but never, listen to this, never to a place where Jesus would not take you. Okay? So a wife should never follow a husband when, in those instances when a husband would lead her away from obedience to Christ into sin. You got that? So I think as we, as we look at uh, particularly what Paul says for husbands, all this will be a lot more palatable, right? But, but let me encourage you, just when I was kind of speaking from my heart here, um, number one, you don't necessarily have to agree with everything I'm saying to continue coming to Redemption Hill. I mean, we don't necessarily agree on everything, but this is, this is the way that through study and prayer and looking at the whole of scripture, this is, this is uh, my understanding. John would share this understanding as as another elder of, of what Paul's saying here. But, but, but listen to this. Just because something is not palatable on the front end doesn't make it not true, right? I mean, when Jesus calls people to follow him, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, like, die to yourself, give up the rights to your old life, and come and follow me. I mean, that's not super palatable for a lot of people. That's why people never follow Christ. So just because there might be kind of like a check in your experience or your desires doesn't mean that we shouldn't embrace it. Now, some other objections, very quickly. You might say, well, this is just an isolated text in Colossians. No, it's in Ephesians 5. It's in Titus 2. You say, well, that's just Paul. No, it's Peter 2, 1 Peter 3. You might say, well, Paul is just capitulating to the culture. Again, this is first century, like Tanner. Like 100 years ago in this country, like we uh, allowed women the right to vote. Like, get up with the times, Paul. Get up with the times, Tanner. And here's something to consider, okay? Even if you don't agree, I just want you to consider this. Go read uh, 1 Timothy 2 and see where Paul gives some similar instructions and he grounds his argument not in the culture, but in creation, in God's design in creation, in our relationships between husbands and wives. And then finally, here's an encouragement for wives. Let Jesus be your example. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, that God is triune. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. Are Jesus and the Father one? Yes. Are Jesus and the Father equal? Yes. Did Jesus and the Father have the same role? No. Did Jesus in everything, as Hebrews 5 clearly tells us, did he submit to the Father's will in everything? His earthly life? Yes. So if Jesus could submit to his Father, what an example for the home life. But, wives, this world is not just strictly for you. Because Paul goes on in verse 19, and he's going to have something that I think carries equal to greater force for men. All right, so like wives, you can kind of listen up, but kind of chill out for a minute, because this is more for husbands. And what did he say? He says, husbands love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. I know that there were maybe some guys, you know, in our sinfulness, we were thinking, man, Tana just said, you know, wives submit to your husband, so man, I can't wait to get home this afternoon. Man, it's going to be cooking me some lunch, and you know, the, I, we want to do that now, I'm watching football right now, like, you know, and That's not exactly the example that Jesus would set for us. In fact, when when Paul says to love our wives, I just want to bring you what he says in Ephesians 5 because he really unpacks this well. In Ephesians 5, verses 25-27, you can follow along on the screen here. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How are you to love? You're to love like Jesus, as Jesus loved his church and gave himself up for her "...that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." And so husbands are to love their wives, but love them in a particular kind of way. Love them like Christ loves his people, and so to do this, what does it look like? Well, number one, it says that he gave his life for the church. So, so men, we are to, to serve our wives, serve our families, sacrifice our agenda, our wants, lay them aside many, many, many times that we might serve our wives and give ourselves up for them. So we take the posture of a servant. All biblical leadership is servant leadership. This is how we view the role of the pastor. Man, we're here to serve. There's nothing special about us. It's just the role, of the calling that God has given. But we're here to serve people, to love people. So husbands, serve. And how do we do this? We we serve with the word. I mean, husbands, do you ever take out the Bible? Do you ever open your Bible in your home and, like, read it with your wife? Read it with your children? Uh, to, to be a leader is to lead spiritually. Now, I know that none of us do this perfectly, but, but this, isn't, this doesn't have to be complicated, all right? Men, just like this week, here's a challenge. One time this week. Maybe you might say, no, no, I haven't done that. I'm going to blow on it. Well, okay, like, let's not continue blowing it, like, for the next five years. Let's, like, start this week. All right, and just take the Bible and this is what we're often doing. we often do we get together and we we'll read through a chapter of the Bible you can read a paragraph your wife can read a paragraph you can read a paragraph your wife can read a paragraph and then you can just discuss it what, this, what does this say how can we live this out more faithfully so faithful husbands who understand what it means to love like Christ loves his church will know how to take a towel and use a sword. Biblical images for serving, washing feet, and using the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, for what purpose that our wives might be sanctified, that our wives might be more like Jesus, that our wives might thrive spiritually and walk in the abundant life that God has for all of us. I mean, if Marsha is struggling spiritually, like, I can't look at Marsha... Solely, I've got to look in the mirror because maybe I'm not leading very well. So he says, husbands, love your wives. I mean, I would just, you know, if we took a poll of all the ladies in here, and you would say, like, like, you know, even if you don't buy into the submission piece the way I described which if you don't, I just encourage you to study the scriptures and, you know, we can certainly talk about it anytime we disagree on, on issues, okay? But, but, but if, if I were to say to the women, women, would you not want to be married to a man like this, that loves like Jesus loves, that serves, that cares about your soul? I would hope that 100% would say absolutely. And so husbands, I want to encourage you, love your life, date your wife. Pursue your wife. Dust yourself off in that game that you used to have, like back in the day, before you were married. You know, like pull it back out and pursue your wife. Love her, write her notes, send her emails. Buy her flowers if she likes that kind of thing. And then he says, finally, yeah, Yunea. Somebody buy Eunia some, some flowers, it's difficult. Her husband's in Uganda right now, so it's kind of difficult to... Uh, maybe we can come together on that. But I, I know Dennis is still loving Unia, like Christ loved his church. And then the final instruction there is to, to not be harsh. That's another way they to, love. To, to deal in, in that relationship with gentleness and carefulness and respect and love. So a beautiful marriage is one where wives carry the submissive spirit and they bring that to the table, but then husbands are bringing Christ-like love and leadership to the table. That's God's intention, God's design for our marriage. But then he moves from the marriage relationship to the relationship between parents and children. And he says, children obey your parents. And so if you're you're a, a child in here, a kid in here, I really want you to pay attention to this little phrase. I would love for all children, and really all of us, especially parents, to, to, to come away with this statement today, all right? We learned this from a former church. The Millers use this in their home, right? It's a seat on their refrigerator at, at their house. Obey right away, all the way, in a cheerful way. So, so, so children, you are to obey your parents. Let me tell you something, kids. Your parents love you. When they ask you to do something, it's for your good because they love you. And so we have to obey, and Paul even says, in in everything. So no matter what they ask you to do, whether that's cleaning up your toys, being nice to your brother or sister, we can even add a phrase here, obey in every way right away, all the way, in a cheerful way. And and then notice it says obey right away. It means that, that when your parents ask you to do something, like, go ahead and do it. Don't wait, you know, like Parker has learned, our our almost three-year-old now, she's learned this kind of formula to buy time, all right? We always have this routine before we go to bed at night, or at least she goes to bed, just two minutes, it's like a two-minute warning before bed, and so now she has learned to reason and negotiate, and she'll say, just a couple minutes, Daddy, two more minutes, Daddy, right? sometimes children are are like this when we ask them to do something they want to kind of do their own thing for 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 a longer amount of time and so so kids obey your parents and obey right away and do it all the way you know don't just like clean your bed by you know pulling the cover over it and kind of making it look like you really did it like i used to sometimes but like try to do it like your parents would or at least like in our case like your mom would, all right? Obey right away, all the way, and in a cheerful way. So sometimes when you're asked to do something, you know, you're like, you shrug your shoulders, you roll your eyes, you complain, and so what God wants us to do is he wants us to obey with a smile on our face. Why? Because as verse 20 says, it says, for this pleases the Lord. So not only do we get to please our parents, but we get to please God because God has given us parents to help us learn what it means to live life in a way that pleases God. And then, and then finally, in these instructions for the home, he would tell fathers, fathers, parent without provocation. Verse 21. I mean, we we could certainly apply this to, to both mothers and fathers. I mean, he has just clearly said in verse 20. Obey your parents, like both of them. So, mothers give instruction and help and lead children in the home. But I think he has a specific word here for fathers because maybe this is a, an, an area not only as a, as a leader of the home, but also maybe as a, a way that men struggle with sometimes. He says, Do not provoke your children. What it means is to irritate or to stir up, to, to kind of stir them up to a rebellious attitude our children. And, and, and I think there are multiple ways that we do this. Sometimes we, we, we can provoke our children to a rebellious attitude by not setting proper boundaries and clear expectations for them. Sometimes we can do so by a harsh and degrading tone. Sometimes we can do it honestly through neglect. I mean, I know we love our children, but how, how much quality time are we spending with them? You know, after it's been a really long day and, and you're just kind of wiped out? Or on the weekend, are you spending quality time with your kids, getting below the surface with them? And then another way I think we do this is by sometimes overprotecting. We're not against protection, that's the job of parents, but sometimes we overprotect and sometimes we overdiscipline or discipline in the wrong way. So we need to have discipline in the home. We have clear expectations but sometimes our discipline is, is impulsive and it's, it's harsh and it's unhelpful for, for children. We want to do this because we don't want our kids to be discouraged. That's what Paul says. He says, lest they become discouraged. We want to parent in a way that, that leads our children to, to be hopeful and confident and courageous as they grow up. And so Paul has covered these, these rules for the home, these instructions, commands for the home, in verses 19 through 18 through 21. But, but then he moves on and in and, and verse 22, and he kind of shifts gears just a little bit. And so the encouragement I want to take away from, from these verses is to not only make Christ supreme in our home, but to make Christ supreme in your work life. And so Paul begins, and he, and he has this word, slaves. So if verse 18 wasn't enough fun for us, let's talk about the issue of slavery in the church this morning, just for a minute. Okay, so this word, you may have a footnote in your Bible, it's slaves, it's, it's in the Greek, bondservants. Some translations kind of soften a little bit, and they say servants, all right, which is certainly applicable to uh, us today, but the Greek really does mean slaves. It means those who were the property of another for the sake of work. And you might say, well, well Tanner, like, What's up with this? Like, why is this in the Bible? Do Christians, should Christians endorse slavery? Absolutely not. I mean, as we read this text, Paul, in no way, is endorsing the institution of slavery. But let me give just a couple of historical notes for us to maybe help us understand why Paul is dealing with this in such a way. Number one, there was this slave in Colossae who had run away from his job. His name was Onesimus. And we have a letter that Paul wrote back to his master, whose name was Philemon, and Onesimus actually became a believer when he fled. He met Paul, and Paul led him to Christ. And so he tells uh, Onesimus to go back to Philemon. And so that unpacks that for us in in the the book of Philemon. And so there's probably uh, some, some very specific reasons why this was an issue in Colossae. In fact, historians, one scholar actually said that in cities during this time, up to one-third of the population, it was possible for one-third of the population to be slaves. And I know it's tempting for us to kind of read this through our American eyes and uh, the, the Civil War and everything that, that happened uh, in our history. but. The slavery in, in, in the New Testament times was not one particular ethnicity or social class. It was, it was widespread and rampant. And liberation of slaves would not have meant what it means today. I mean, to, 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 for a slave to be freed in that day might have meant a lot of trouble and hardship. So much so that sometimes people actually sold themselves into slavery for the benefit of their family. So generally speaking, what we have in our minds of slavery is not what people experienced in the first century. So perhaps that's part of the reason that Paul is not just coming out and railing on the institution of slavery. But we also have to consider that Christians were this new tiny religious group in an authoritarian government. So they do not have much of a voice. They cannot just kind of write up a new policy, bring it to the table, and get enough votes to make it pass. But it is significant that Paul addresses slaves here because what is he doing? He is addressing them as equal members of this new community of faith. So I will say that that fact alone, that that Paul here in Christianity is already subverting The institution of slavery. Now, I think we can take these principles that Paul has writing to slaves and masters and we can uh, apply them to our work life. And so what I want to do is lay out five principles for our work life. I hope that you'll find them helpful uh, and encouraging and particularly applicable as you go back and punch the time clock this week. Number one, do your job. Do your job well and do it to the best of your ability. Number two, do your job with the right motives. Look what he says in verse twenty-two. He says, "So obey in everything those who are earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord." So we know that it's it's easy to kind of do our job well when the boss has his eye on us. It's another thing to have the integrity to do our job to the utmost at all times, no matter who has their eye on us. Because as Paul reminds these Christians, he says, look, there is someone who always has their eye on you. His name is God. And we should always work in such a way that we have our eye on him, fearing him, revering him, respecting who he is, that we would work And serve with the right motives not as people pleasers but as God pleasers and then number three he would say do your job in the right way do your job the right way work heartily as for the Lord not for men and so how is your work ethic would people look at your life and, and the way that, that you work in your profession? Or if you're a student, the way that you go to class and kind of manage college life? Would, would they say, man, that, that is a person who gets the job done. They break a sweat. They work really hard at what they do. And again, what's Paul's motivation here at every turn? It is, as for the Lord and not for men. And so, when you crunch numbers and write reports and serve and care for people, do it in such a way that you're serving Jesus. You could have the attitude, Jesus is my boss. Jesus is my manager. Jesus is my professor. Jesus is my editor-in-chief. You might say, well, Tanner, you don't know my boss. You don't know my manager, man. They're like evil. They're nothing like Jesus. Well, that's all the more reason to treat them as if they were. Perhaps God will use you to bring change to them. So Paul says work hard, work heartily as for the Lord, and and then do your job for the right reward. I mean I know that we work to earn a living, to, to pay the bills, and that's a necessary part of life. But hopefully our primary motivation is not what comes in every two weeks or every four weeks, whatever the case may be for you. Uh, Hopefully it is that we are working in such a way to gain an inheritance from the Lord. Those who belong to Christ will one day inherit the kingdom of God with him where everyone is righted and there is fullness of joy. And so Paul says, do do your job for the right order and then And then finally, do your job with justice. So Paul here has a word even for masters, even for those in the position of authority. He says, treat your workers justly and fairly in such a way that would honor God because you too have a master in heaven. I mean, do you you see this? I mean, think about this. If you struggle in your work, I want to encourage you to consider the cross and consider the gospel. Jesus Christ had a mission. He says, I have work to do. He uses that term all the time. I'm working. My father is working. I, too, am working. The night is coming when no one can work. I have work to do. And so Jesus worked hard at his mission, and he completely finished the task. His task was so great that he would die for the sins of the world. This was his mission. And on the cross, what does he say? The last three words. It is is finished. But then the writer of Hebrews would reflect on Christ's sacrifice and he would say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And so in all of these things and all of these principles, we find motivation through the gospel, through Jesus, through the cross, that we can work just as Jesus worked. We can finish our job and do it well all for the proper reward, just like Jesus. And so we need to, as believers, make Christ supreme in our home. And we need to make Christ supreme in our workplace. You might be here this morning and you might be struggling in your marriage, in your parenting, with your 9 to 5 or your 10 to 8 or your 12 to 8 or whatever the case may be. And I want to tell you that there are resources in the heart of God for you to make some adjustments and changes. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you never embraced Jesus as Lord and what he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, then that's the place to start. Our lives won't be transformed down to the details until we embrace Christ as Lord and he transforms our heart initially. So if that's you today and you need to make the decision, you know, like, well, let us know that. and Say, like, man, I haven't lived my life for God and I see what Jesus has done and now I want to live my life for Him. I want to believe in Him and trust Him and follow Him with my life. So you can do that. You can even do it by just letting us know through the connection card or finding me or one of our leaders after church. Just say, man, I want to, I want to really know what it means to follow Christ. I want to follow Him. Help me out here. But then for others of us who may be believers. Man, there is victory in Christ. He leads his people through everything, and he wants to help you even if you're struggling in work or at home. Let's lean on him and experience the victory that he gives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word And Lord, I pray that you would help us to wrestle well with what your word says to us and how it calls us to live our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.